You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. So it is important to kind of talk about how well you can live without the normal, um, the normal trappings of comfort and to great benefit. You know, the no car factor connects you to your neighbours, it connects you to your street, it, it changes everything. I have two different views when it comes to constraints. On the one hand, I want them in my life. I see how I'm more creative in my thinking. I see how having them helps me to find out things about myself I didn't realise. On the other hand, when it comes to the direction of my life, I want the potentials to be unconstrained. I want to be open to whatever comes my way. For this week's guest, choosing to work within constraints is a feature of many aspects of her life. From not having a car, from being an artist, and bringing about change within the bounds of an NGO, she is finding the liberation of thought and living that constraints can bring. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Rebecca Lovett on the subtle disruption that comes through embracing constraints. Yeah, probably nearly eight years ago, I just started really thinking about the, how I was using my time and what I was focusing my energy on. Um, and I was working as an art curator at that time. Okay. Um, within, mainly within the health context, which was not planned. It's just sort of where I ended up. So I was managing a large collection of pu- a public collection of art. Really? Yeah, and also responsible for. Um, the purchasing of new artworks and commissioning of artworks around new hospital facilities and extensions and things like that. A massive, anyway. So it was really, really interesting work. Yeah. But I was becoming, so I, I spent nearly seven years in doing that work. So it was very much focused around the customer experience within the health context. Yeah, wow. Did you have a background in art? Or yeah. You did? So yeah. my first degree was a fine arts degree. Okay. So with, um, in painting. Yeah. And, um, but I quickly realized I needed to um, find probably <laughs> a career that where I might be able to make some money. Yeah. And so I went after finishing um, my bachelor degree, my first degree, I went, it, I ended up working in IT. So I let, um, and I found a great job working for a software company in Melbourne and just learned huge amounts yeah. about running a business and what were you doing software the testing software i was really their office manager so yeah. it was like my first real job outside working in the hospitality industry which is what got me through my first degree yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so so that so that sort of experience of working in tech and but still sort of having this love of art sort of it's kind of stayed with me pretty much the whole the whole way through my career yeah but um, I've kind of gone back and forth. So I ended up doing a, um, a postgrad degree in art curatorship and found my way then actually into working as an art curator for, um, for quite a while, in well, seven, eight years or something. Um, but it was very much within that customer experience context. So I think oh, that um, interest in systems and systems improvement also stayed with me. Yeah. Um, and, and then working in health, which is an incredible system in and of itself, but also, uh, you know, within the critical care sector, so acute, acute hospitals, they're struggling with so many challenges, like really complex issues of patient flows and demand and cutbacks constantly. And so then when you start thinking about the customer experience or the patient experience within that context, it becomes really, really fascinating. Because ultimately you're dealing with people going through trauma Mm. in hospitals, whether it's the individual, the patient themselves or their families. It's like, yeah, so they're they're really tense, kind of congested and um, really, I I find them energy-filled environments, not necessarily positive either. Yeah. And so, so as someone with a sort of a real creative background, then working within the health context, I found quite shocking at first. And I remember having this one experience where I just hung this beautiful um, painting. It was like an 80s giant, um, 80s uh, 
abstract sort of real expressionistic piece was huge and I'd hung it on this wall and I was stepping back to admire it and it looked awesome and so this is in a hospital a cute hospital and then all of a sudden there's yelling and classic kind of emergency situation where there was an ambulance bay at the end of the corridor I was standing in and you know there was a patient coming up like with a stream of clinical staff chasing running after the trolley and anyway so it was all um, and all of a sudden I realized that my passion which at the time had been very much driven by the art itself was actually a bit out of place and when I really needed to flick my thinking into what was going on in the world of that patient and the family and what did they actually need from this experience rather than the sort of more selfish approach of just appreciating the the artwork for art's sake so yeah. so that was a kind of a, a significant step for me for, which sounds probably a little bit bizarre but it was at that point that my focus became much more around the user experience and so that's been really um, a major underpinning then ever so for the last probably eight years so I went and did a psychology degree yeah after that just wanting to sort of explore more the whole experiential side of our existence and trying to unpick that a little bit more um, can we go back to the hospital for a minute? Do you yeah. mind if we just keep rolling? No, <laughs> is that yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, there is a first question I ask normally, but we can get to that because this is really interesting. I mean, what was the whole, what was the, I guess, the idea about the art in the public hospital anyway? Like before mm. that moment, mm. you yeah. know, for you, and I'm mm. interested in after that moment too, but what was it up until that point? Yeah. So the collection um, based out at Monash, Monash Medical Centre was where the majority of the art collection was had been found, well, established in the mid-80s with the conscious attempt to humanise the clinical environment back yeah. then. And it was just really through good fortune that they'd managed to have a string of really capable art curators who'd managed to build the collection um, with really high-quality artworks. Um, yeah, so it was quite extraordinary. There was also a core, like a historical core to the collection that had come from the old, um, um, oh gosh, the name's escaping me, but the, an, an older hospital that closed down in a city, Melbourne. Okay. And so then the collection had been shifted out to this new hospital at the time, yeah, at Monash. So, so yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. Do you think, was it effective in humanising it? I think absolutely. Yeah. The number of comments I got. I think during my time there, I managed to nearly double the size of the collection, which was extraordinary. We managed to find donors that were willing to gift a number of artworks. We had an incredible um, executive, um, uh, an incredibly generous woman who donated or gifted, or it was like temporary loan, her entire art collection as well. So it was these extraordinary artworks everywhere. So. I think absolutely it's effective, yeah. yeah. And what changed for you after that moment, after mm. the, putting up that 1980s yeah, abstract so piece? It was, it was more the way, um, probably more around the way I work. So I started doing a lot more with the community at mine, in mind and bringing a lot more consultation into the way I would evolve an installation for instance or um, it, it became much more about that customer experience and how you can use artwork or other sort of um, physical features to guide people and you know ensure the experience is an easy one and it also became no longer just about art alone it's about all the elements so you're looking at lighting, you're looking at floor yeah. covering, you're looking at plants. Yeah. All those aspects that combined actually make it a more human experience. Music as well in the hospital context is really powerful. Yeah. Music, plants is one of the things that I was thinking about as yeah. you were talking about, um, you know, humanising the, the hospital experience for people. Where we're sitting right now, there you've got an abundance of plant life. Yeah. There might be a nice that. little tie-in actually. Do you want to talk about where we are? Yeah, okay, so we're at, um, we're at the Commons, which is where I live, where we live, and 
Um, it, we are in a very urban sort of inner north, inner north Melbourne um, environment. So the outside it's pretty gritty, but the Commons is based around um, this idea of living simply and. I find greenery around, so that's why I've got a lot of indoor plants and stuff, just really soothes that. Because mm. if when you look out the window and you're seeing empty sort of ugly warehouses and stuff, it's nice Across to have a bit of lush green inside. Yeah. Yeah, so I find that really smooths the, um, what is otherwise quite an industrial context. Yeah. Yeah. Gritty is the perfect way to describe the inner yeah. north of it's Melbourne It's so gritty, well. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes Brunswick can just look so ugly, but... In, I actually love the grit now, so once you're used to it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Mm. Um, and now, you just took me for a bit of a tour before this, because mm. this is the first time I've been here, and I've heard a lot about it. I guess it's been written up quite a bit in different publications, and there's probably been a little bit of controversy about it too, because of the lack of car parks. Well, there's no car parks. There's no car parks. In the, yeah. How many apartments are there here? There's, there's 24 apartments. 24, yeah. Um, and zero car parks, yeah. So there's there's 70 bike spots. We probably need about 100. Really? Yeah, there's, there's just nowhere near enough bike spots for everyone's bikes, which yeah. is quite funny. Well, because people have more than one bike. Yeah, yeah. yeah everyone. Uh, yeah, most people would have three or four to each apartment, it seems. So three, at least three. Um yeah. Yeah. So it it it's it is a really interesting place to live. We've obviously got like the the vegetable gardens on the roof which aren't doing that great at this time of year, but they'll emerge again soon with the summer months. Everyone normally gets a good tomato crop or two. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, and I suppose the 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 courtyards that the building has too with the greenery in and on my level when the courtyard windows are open on the foyer on the level on the out in the foyer sorry i'm not making much sense just having those glimpses of lush green through the louver windows is really really lovely as well yeah i really like that a lot and the creepers um that grow up and down the wires at the front of the building or the chains um also by um by high summer they're they're quite lush and green too as they leaf up which is really lovely yeah so green green is really important here definitely and it's obviously a it's um a very eco-friendly building when the doors and windows are shut the the apartments do stay pretty constant so there's no air conditioning um there's no, no there's a heater, there's a heater. Yeah. yeah we've got hydronic heating like you can yeah. see that just back here yeah but uh, um but even in winter, it's just never cold in here. It's just lovely. And it's yeah. been, you said it was built on, I guess, principles of simplicity and sustainability by the mm. sound of it as well. Like, yeah, was that the developers and the architects, is that, was that front of mind? Simplicity, simple living? Yeah, yeah. high quality, simple, um, easy to live in, easy to maintain. Um, is absolutely a big part of it, I think. I mean, breathe... Breathe Architects, who are the firm that designed the building, that's all their architecture really is like that. Yeah. It's really, um, so high quality design, but you know, mostly the furniture is built in and it's really quite basic, you know, so you don't actually need very much furniture here at all, yeah. um, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think the thing, it does have a great feel to it, and the thing that I guess comes to mind as I walked around and even being out on your balcony is that it's not about putting up barriers between you and your neighbours like the the fence between your balcony and your neighbours is only waist high mm. and there's communal laundries which mm -hmm. uh, encourages people to meet mm -hmm. and the rooftop gardens as you were talking about as well and like the barbecue area it's it's designed for people to interact rather than to be segregated yeah yeah and that that would have to be the most amazing thing about living here it's that you actually know all your neighbors and i've lived in apartment complexes before where you almost hide from your neighbors because you don't want to say hello and if you see someone you know people barely even wave yeah. but here they everyone says hello everyone knows my son's name says hello yeah um and it's it's lovely you know it's lovely that you can say hi to your next door neighbor or have a glass of wine leaning over their balcony or yeah. invite them over for a bowl of pasta and they're just you know 
jump the fence or like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's really great yeah um and i think you know we all sort of wonder whether this model would always work or whether it's the fact that all of us do have a strong kind of shared value base given that we we've all been here sort of from the early days so we're all quite invested in the concept <laughs> um so I, I do think that helps yeah. um there's not so there's, you know, you don't have, um, although there's a wide range in ages here and, you know, relationship statuses and whatever else, we all are quite committed to the basic principles of living simply, being sensitive to the environment and kind of the common uh, a sense of taking care of your neighbour, the common good kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, which is really good. So it sounds like the the turnover is pretty low here. Yeah, there's only um, only one couple have moved out. Oh no, oh. two. One woman moved to the country yeah. when she had a baby, and then another couple were in a one bedder. And when they had a child, they realised they need okay. more space, so they moved. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. Yeah. Which is nice for an inner city block. It's really nice. And yeah. rare, probably. Yeah. yeah. And most so mostly it's owner occupied. I think that really helps too. Yeah. So yeah. there's not, yeah. And super close to the railway line as well. Yeah, 50 metres to the train station. <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of people ask whether the noise is just unbearable, but we have double glazed windows. So you actually, when the doors are shut, you actually don't hear the trains yeah. at all. But you also, you, as soon as, um, you don't miss the trains. I mean, you don't, you don't hear, the trains don't, um, I'm trying to say they don't actually bother you so you don't it, the sound becomes just background noise yeah, yeah. i get that yeah i've mm. lived close to public transport my whole life and it's you do know i did notice it for the first couple of weeks usually mm, yeah. when I move to a new place yeah. and then yeah, it just yeah, yeah. incorporates into the normal yeah yeah um so you why you know why did you move here why what was attractive to this you know was it we have talked a little bit about this before, but so this is a bit of a leading question, but was it a quite a contrast to your previous mm, life? Yeah, yeah, so it was a massive contrast. So yeah, we, we'd been um, in the sort of northeastern suburbs, still not that far from the city, but in a big house. Um, we were paying huge electricity bills and it was like, this life this doesn't feel right. We were you know really tied to having a car and needing a car for sort of everything um and i wanted to try a different way of living and just a more um a more honest simpler life just to try and cut out some of the craziness and yeah so it's not always so much rushing and i think yeah. that was what was appealing here and to not so not having a car here means you rethink everything you know you think about what how much you're buying at the shops because you don't you can't buy a lot at any one time so everything becomes um quite different it's, it's all geared around walking and transport and how you where you're going so um i think it's it's been a really good decision for us so even just walking um my son's school you know before i would have said oh no we have to drive because i'm in too much of a hurry there's just no way we could walk but now it becomes, no, you make the time for walking, so you just do walk. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas if the car was there, we might. We do have a go-get parked right outside, so if we want, we can just take the go-get, but yeah. mostly, mostly we don't. We walk. Yeah. So, so I think it, it was very much a conscious decision. Selling the my car was pretty hard. I yeah, felt pretty sad I about that it. for a bit. I was yeah. pretty attached to my car. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I haven't honestly missed it at all. Yeah. Not, not a bit. Yeah. Not for a moment. And I wish... I actually had people tell me that I wouldn't be able to cope. My uncle said, you're mad, Rebecca. You shouldn't sell your car. You're absolutely mad. It'll really negatively impact your life. What are you doing? <laughs> I was just like, hey, I don't, I don't believe this is, this is true. So... But yeah, pretty easy to buy a car again. It if you is. Need to. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> it's not irreversible. There's plenty out there. And I think this is my personal hypothesis. It's probably just not mine, but um, I, I think I think there's going to be a time not too far in the future where we none of us own cars anyway. 
and if cars go driverless as well, then, you know, there'll be no point to owning cars, which will be a massive revolution for our cities in terms of car parking and how streets are used and that so, kind of thing. So I totally yeah. share that view. I Uber makes it so easy these days. And, you know, once Uber, Uber cars are driverless, I think that will no doubt be the change everything for the way we move around our cities yeah um i hope that it doesn't mean we stop investing in public transport because i think that's critical (laughs) but yeah i think you know in the future you don't need your own car yeah the reality is like even walking hamish to school i notice the number of cars that are parked outside people's places anyway so the notion that you need a car (laughs) to drive it around once or twice a week and on a weekend is actually just weird but we have been conditioned to believe that's how we live and that we need that car and it's a critical status symbol and yeah 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 and when you like like you say if you well if you don't give yourself the choice then uh then it's a lot it's quite interesting what else does Mm. come up for Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and how else you choose to live yeah yeah um so you're talking about i guess you were talking us through your progression from um, working in tech and healthcare and art. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in, um, you know, the human, like you talked about the customer experience side mm. of things as well and humans in a designer. I think that's something that I'm starting to learn a lot about recently too. I've gone back into IT after being out of it for a while and coming across a whole lot of, yeah, design agencies and strategic design agencies, and I'm fascinated by the work that they do. I just think it's so important and so cool mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, did you, did this come from you, or were you learning about this stuff externally as well? Um, so I definitely have noticed the growing trend and huge focus emerging around human-centered design, and I and I suppose in many respects. Um, sort of going back seven, eight years ago, it was probably just really emerging in a strong way. Um, From a healthcare perspective, all the focus was on person-centred care. So that is similar but different. But designing a health system around the needs of a patient is a really different approach rather than just basing healthcare on the needs of clinicians. Yeah. (laughs) So... um, so, but I think it ultimately connected very closely to my my own personal arts practice and my own personal interest in art, which is ultimately, as a painter or as an artist, you're producing work for others to look at and respond to in some particular way. And there's obviously a personal investment as an artist, but you are very conscious of of the viewer and the person looking at your work and and I think even when I'm producing my own paintings I step between being both the creator and the the and the viewer so you you go back and forth back and forth back and forth and I think that's a practice many artists do intuitively so and and design is something I've always loved as well and I think so it kind of, it just connects for me. Yeah. The, um, the whole psychology of space and experience is also another fascinating thing. So when you combine them all together, it's just, it, it, it's just what works for me. And it's a, it's a much more intuitive, although informed response. Like it's not yeah. just intuition, it's like you, you're gathering um, information and data from a whole range of sources and then you're combining it in a way that makes sense for that for the for the end user or the viewer or the patient so I like that I like that it's um, that considering the human experience or the customer experience is much is there's an alchemy to it and I think that's why work in this realm appeals to me because there is still a strong creative but there's also a technical and a rational and um, yeah, that's that's the sort of work that inspires me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is is there? Well, perhaps you can talk to a bit about how that's manifesting now in the work that you're doing now. But was 
I'm curious to see, was there a gap between what you're doing <laughs> now and then the yeah. work in the hospital too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did, I did a few um, rapid leaps, I call them, <laughs> where you sort of, I ended up, um, I sort of did a period of consulting work and then also working with a couple of NGOs and then also a um, marketing agency trying to find the kind of work that I'm happiest in, I suppose. I don't want to, um, I, and I need an unusual balance I know of creative as well as practical work, so that's what I'm always looking for. Yeah. Um, the I landed in a tech startup, so it was called Be Collective and we were basically creating um, a social network for connecting community organisations to enable um, a better sharing of surplus resources that are in the not-for-profit sector. So. Yeah. If you think about um, disaster relief or, you know, another type of community event or demand and you end up, say, with a stockpile of water bottles or sandbags in one location while another agency down the road is actually really struggling. Mm. And so we were looking at how you bring all of that together and then enable it to be shared. So w what I realised I loved about that work was the com the combination again of that um, the user story gathering and understanding of the user needs com and combining that with um, working really closely with the developers around what that final solution will look like and I and I love that work I also love working in an iterative way it appeals to me naturally I think <laughs> it, it's actually how as an artist, I just naturally work, and a lot of artists, I suppose, probably also work like that. So that sort of really um, build, measure, learn sort of iterative cycles <laughs> yeah. becomes um, a way of operating that really works. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So I, I absolutely loved that um, that work, and and I and I basically ended up heading up this tech startup for eighteen months. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. So that was f full on. Yeah. Um, hard work. We were lucky to have a fair level of private backing, so finances wasn't th the normal pressure it would be in that in that environment. Um, but you could all, uh, anyway. But we had the founder um, had this grand vision. He was sure that this platform we were building was going to be bigger than Facebook, and he was committed to that view and. Um, in the end, he and I had a had a difference of, a, of opinion. I kept saying, let's just make it work in one locality. Let's just focus on Swinburne, one university. Let's make it work, just like many other platforms have. But he was like, no, I want to take over the world. We're going to launch in Ireland. And I was like, let's just try one local area, one, one neighbourhood. <laughs> and um, he was like, no, I want to go to New Zealand as well. I'm like, oh, God, New Zealand, Ireland. <laughs> anyway. So, so it was really tough, but I just made this, the call to, to leave. I felt like my positive energy was just not going anywhere there and I couldn't gain traction really um, to after, that, after a certain point when the founder really wanted to be much more involved again day to day because he really hadn't been present, sort of been. Um, so, yeah, s went looking for what might be my next opportunity. And that uh, was when I found this role working with um, the current my current organisation, which is the Alcohol and Drug Foundation. So totally unusual in many respects. But what really appealed to me um, about my current role and indeed about the organisation was hearing that they were sort of on the right on the precipice of change. They knew they had to adapt as an NGO. They knew they needed to transform their operations into something that was far more digital focused. And they knew they needed to go through a massive rebranding process because they had very poor levels of engagement with the community in many respects. Um, and so all of those things were like, yeah, I like that stuff, I like that stuff, I like that stuff. And so knowing that there were a couple of really big juicy projects that I could get my teeth into, I. I stepped in there. I thought the transition would be a hell of a lot of it easier than it has been, though. It's inc it's um, it's been 
for the organisation or for yourself? I'm talking personally, but yeah. I think also it's been hard for the organisation. Yeah. Um, I wasn't prepared for the slow pace of change. Yeah. I wasn't prepared for re- the resistance to what, for me, coming in with fresh eyes, um, coming in from a tech startup was just plainly obvious. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wasn't prepared for the level of resistance to my way of thinking at all. But for, for a good while, and I've just gone over a year there, I was definitely the alien in the room. Um, people didn't understand the, the language I was using. They didn't understand. In fact, they were terrified of anything to do with startups. They were, despite being an organisation of only around 100 people, they were still sort of looking at the corporate world to provide the answers from, for all things, from the operating models to um, project management. And I was stunned because I'd come from working in a startup space and knowing that all the corporates out there are watching intently the startup world to try and understand how to develop and evolve faster yeah. because they know they've got it wrong. And all of a sudden I found myself in an NGO that was still looking at the corporate, the big giant corporate to have for the answers. And of course the giant corporates don't have the answers anymore. There are more answers to be found in the startup space because it is the ability to adapt the nimble, quick sort of agile approaches to solving problems yeah and it's that type of thinking that ngos need (laughs) yeah it's not the bureaucratic layered sort of hierarchical mega structures of corporate world like that's not going to solve the challenges we have in this world yeah no yeah so so as an organization it's it is really fascinating because although the subject matter is around um, alcohol and drug harm prevention the, fo- the organisation is very much focused on building community as a way of minimising harm so we know right. that most people don't develop habits of addiction when they do, when there are strong supports around them so it's often when people fall through the gaps of the social structure that they actually end up really struggling with um, whether it's because they're recovering from trauma or something else, that's when they are at the most vulnerable and end up struggling with addictions yeah. of one kind or another. Yeah, so, so in many respects, the work does align with my purpose, so that, that's useful. But the t- incredible challenge has been around me for me um it has been about channeling what is very clearly in this context a very disruptive style my style (laughs) is very disruptive to the way they're thinking in this um in this ngo and i wasn't i wasn't prepared for that yeah i want to talk about what you've learned there because that's i've you know i do i guess something similar in a quite a different context but I, I'm trying to in the work that I do at Code for Australia we're trying to help government departments adopt startup kind of thinking as well which um, which is can be quite difficult and slow to do similarly so before I talk before I ask you about that I just wanted to find out a bit more about I guess ADF but also about alcohol and drug culture in Australia like where where is it at at the moment? Like, what is the, is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Is is it just changing? I mean, I'm really interested in what you said there about um, the community um, mission of the organisation mm-hmm. too. And places like the Commons are kind of interesting in in that regard as well because there's a very strong community here. But mm-hmm. anyway, that's quite a broad question. But, you know, how what is yeah. the state of affairs yeah, yeah. in Australia at the moment? The funny thing is we also have a wine bar downstairs, so I don't, I don't know. I probably won't comment on that. Yeah. It is lovely having... It's a lovely wine bar. It's nice having it there. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the younger generations are drinking less, which is really great. So there does seem to be a less of a binge drinking culture emerging. But there's really high rates of harm amongst the 40 and 50-year-olds, both sexes, men and women... 
Um, there's also a growing national dependency, it seems, on opioids and benzos. So the prescription and um, over-the-counter uh, codeine, for instance, right. um, those drugs are causing huge harms as well. But also there's a tendency for people to um, misuse those and we call it polyuse, but you know dr they're drinking and popping pills. You know, people are popping a couple of codeine for a headache and then having a couple of glasses of wine and it's a pretty, yeah. pretty terrifying sort of habit because you can actually um, overdose very, very quickly. Right. So all in all, I think there's good signs, but there's also um, some fairly alarming stats too. I think Australians take more ecstasy than any other country in the world. So you could say, well, that's because we have a highly urbanised population and da da, da 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 But the reality is that taking pills out for a lot of young kids is really, really common. So they may not be drinking anywhere near what they used to in terms of... In, um, alcohol consumption, a particular age bracket, but they're definitely um, willing to take illicit drugs to to uh, yeah have that sort of high experience that they're looking for. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and I think because there is so much acceptance around taking ease, for instance, people do forget that they actually can be incredibly harmful. Then. What is the, the ADF's approach is the harm minimization that's there? Prevention is our focus. So yeah. we don't, so when you think about prevention, it's much more of um, what we call the upriver approach. So we <clears throat> want people to have their protective factors around them, protective factors such as strong relationships, um, good education, employment, because they're actually the the protective factors that save the trouble sort of happening further down. Yeah. Um, we do we do advocate for some harm minimization practices like we're currently promoting or advocating for um, pill testing in festivals. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so our our focus over the longer term is prevention. So really upstream, but we do we do sort of cover off on. <clears throat> a wide range of other programs. Sorry, I'm getting a bit of a frog in my throat. Yeah, so if those upriver, <clears throat> I mean, that's for a, a small NGO to be, that's kind of like touching every other NGO in a way, every yeah. other government department, like talking about those kind of things. That's, and it seems right to me, but that seems like a, a big ask as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is ambitious. Um, we're also, yeah, it, sorry, uh, connects me to a high, wide range of tangents and I do have a tendency <laughs> to go off on tangents really, really quickly. But um, So the fact that our work is more and more moving into the prevention space has led us to really um, develop a new community-facing brand which will probably evolve into an entity of its own. So we're developing a new... Um, brand or platform called Future Communities, which is all around how do we, how do we support community to lead positive change. Um, and we've also just received a large chunk of federal funding to deliver community-based action around drug harm prevention in 220 communities across the country. So, so that's a really exciting development for the organisation. And the piece that I'm also really excited about is developing a, um, a community of practice, so a multi-sided platform where we're actually providing resources for communities around practical things like how they lead social change locally, as well as all the other kind of learning resources around, um, you know, particular drug or dependency issues, etc. Yeah. Um, and then also allowing the communities to have that element of peer-to-peer -peer learning so that they can share all the stories of success or failure and we can over time really build that out to be um, a strong, supportive, um, 
infrastructure, I suppose. Yeah, and it means that our work has then the potential to reach a lot more. So while we might not have funding to provide grants to all the communities who are engaged in our platform, any community in the in the country or in the world really could still access those resources and benefit from yeah. this stuff and so that's that's something i'm really quite excited about yeah yeah so we're starting on that whole kind of scoping prototyping journey for that platform um in the next few months which is really cool yeah yeah and so we're yeah but even so to to actually explore that process a little bit more the challenge for me in the organization with my very much sort of digital thinking kind of approach is the classic sort of old school old school IT kind of um, methodology if you like of building out IT solutions based on massive spec lists that are like 3,000 items long and yeah planning um, IT developments over a very, very long period um, is in strong contrast to my far more kind of iterative, agile approach where I'd, you know, love to see us with a really minimal prototype up within a couple of months and let's just find a couple of communities who can work with us and try and test this out and just keep going so that, you know, at the end of a 12-month period, we don't just have... A giant list of um, specced out requirements. We've actually got a bare bones platform with people <laughs> engaged and helping to evolve the solution while you know while we go. So that's. But you know, I know I've actually just read a paper. Oh, we've got another exec meeting tomorrow, and I read a paper that is basically saying IT should make all the decisions around the platform's development, and it. Quite frankly, it can't work like that because if you're operating from a user-centered methodology, IT doesn't know the solution that's required. It's it's a combination. They're critical inputs and they have to support, you know, the back end and the servicing and the system administration, which I'm all for. But the decision is actually defined by the interaction between the, the vision for the platform and the end user. So... Yeah. Um, I know this instinctively and intuitively and I've also seen it work so I'm in a really good position to argue for it however it's if you've never seen this approach work and you've never been part of a project that's run like this I think it just sounds mad <laughs> yeah. so that's kind of what I'm up against right now yeah mm. and like, I totally get what you're talking about, too, because I've been involved in the software startup and I've seen the other side of it with the big spec kind of waterfall, you know, long-term project. And I'm not, maybe, I don't know how common it is out in other realms of the world now. Um, so I'm, not, I'm just trying to think of the different people that might be listening to this. But <laughs> it, is, it is a bit of a scary way to start working. But when, when I found, when I did start working this way, I think like you described earlier, earlier, it's a great way to be working. Like I found it liberating mm. and exciting and empowering mm. as well. And the feedback cycles being so short, mm. you know, from building something mm -hmm. and then finding out if it's useful or not. Mm -hmm. Just such a, um, yeah, such a positive experience overall. Yeah. And uh, the, way of, the way of just regular communication, like short, sharp communication among the team, um, and, you know, I'm talking about a few years ago now that I was doing this, um, and I'm sure it's, it's evolved a lot more. And the things, you know, people keep talking about, um, you know, design thinking, human-centered design, this kind of thing, it's, it's probably even better now. Yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I can't imagine working any other way at the moment. It will no doubt evolve into some other practice, but at this stage, um, it's actually the only way I want to work. So... Yeah. Uh, I, look, I think within my work context, we'll get there, but it is, it's, and I've, I've actually had to really, well, what's the word, steal myself or really find my own inner reserves because I believe that NGO sector and the not-for-profit not for space needs to evolve and they actually need to evolve really, really fast with limited resourcing, with limited um, funds available to 
to support that change, you actually, we have to be smarter than ever. Like we have to be so damn clever. And community needs are not dropping off, but government funds are. So, and they're not going to ever go up again. You know, it's just, it's just the reality. So we actually need to find ways to be smarter and smarter with what we've got. Yeah. I think we'll call them traditionalists. I think <laughs> that some of the traditionalists in the NGO space are fearful that this, this is too loose and they, they take um, courage, probably false courage, from the stability that they see sort of in the corporate kind of structure, etc. But it's, it's really is false hope. You know, there we are in such a complex, adaptive, changing environment now that any belief that you know what's ahead is plainly wrong. Like you actually can only survive by adopting this kind of agile process yourself. Mm. So, hmm. There's, there's so many um, parallels there to like mindfulness and meditation, yeah. you know, and being in the moment yeah. and improv. Um, yeah, there's a couple of comments I want to make. I'm, I get a bit excited when you talk about this stuff because um, the first one was about, I, uh, the week before last, we had this guy called um, Ben Richardson come in from PwC, right? Like a big corporate consulting firm to talk about their agile methodology and how they get, when they start a new product, they get the the minimum viable product out within like one, well, like probably three to four weeks. They get mm, it out, they awesome. make sure, you know, they, they do it really fast and sharp and then they iterate on that. And so, like you say, the corporates are kind of mimicking mm-hmm. the startups mm-hmm. now because they realize. And the other thing I wanted to comment on was just that, you know, you're talking about how government funding is only going to be less and less and, yeah, co- government funding is coming down for NGOs and other organizations. But just the how that constraint in funding can be an opportunity as yeah. well. And thinking about how you describe the commons and you know, and getting rid of a car, having the constraint of not having a car park and having to get rid of the car and then what that actually the other things that brought into your life. Mm. Like embracing those constraints and probably as an artist as yeah. well, right? The yeah, constraint yeah, yeah. is where the magic can happen. I totally agree with you. Um, I believe that is absolutely the case. And it's, it's really fascinating, even um, in my workplace, there was a sense of greater constraint for a while when I first joined, so the first couple of months, but then we actually heard we'd won this rather significant um, funding round. So all of a sudden there was, there was a shift in um, the sense of urgency, which in, for me was a bit of a shame because I actually quite like that. I like that sort of sense of really looking at what you've got and working out how you can execute on that yeah. and it is it's true um definitely from an arts practice perspective as well you're always looking at you know what shitty materials you've got and trying to find a way to actually turn it into something decent yeah. something you can be proud of something that's got your heart in it and um yeah and that's i guess that's also what i love about the arts is that you often are like it's the human spirit that's engaged in the work of creation that actually makes something awesome or it's the collaborative process that brings out the the joy the genius um yeah so i I agree i think constraints are necessary almost yeah yeah for the creative or innovative process yeah. And, and I can even apply that to um, the tech startup I was in. I actually think the fact that we had so much private um, investment was a detriment to the, um, the speed at which we were seeing success. I think if we'd had to be leaner um, from the onset, it would have been quite interesting because the platform had already been in development for two years when I joined and they'd never once... Um, talk to an end user (laughs) yeah so that was very very, anyway I I learned a huge amount from that from that experience but I'm definitely learning a huge amount in my current role as well yeah yeah maybe you can tell us a bit about what you are learning and going back to the question I had earlier about you know how what are some of the things you're learning about bringing about change or that that bringing about what seems obvious to you and, and spreading it to, I guess, an audience that probably this is like 
maybe heretical or you know mm. um, completely new at mm. least mm. Um, so I guess the, uh, yeah a, a number of different things are coming to mind so early on when I first joined um, there was there was already it's a tech it was a tech issue that I identified really quickly we were locked into a really shitty CMS solution with a fading the, the platform that we'd invested in this CMS was just shit anyway I won't <laughs> name any names but I flagged it really early on but I didn't think through in my naivety um, just how confronting that would be for the people that had made the decisions and who was this woman to come in and say we've made a bad technology decision because we did all this work we had a list of 3,000 spec diet you know requirements blah, blah 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 and we went out and sought a vendor based on that and how could it be wrong and how could anyway so I think the way you introduce um, issues or call out flaws is actually really really important so I've spent a lot of time um, just reading and understanding that from an adaptive leadership perspective and and how critical it is when you know there is a need for change to keep the heat high enough to drive change but to not let it go over the boil basically to a point where people those around you and particularly those with a vested stake in the issue um, are in absolute fear mode because when they're in fear mode they will just sort of shut down and no change will happen so you have to keep it in the adaptive zone so not too much heat um, and not too little yeah and and that is that is a fine art within a conservative context or a, a change resistant context um, I also, as someone who really loves change, or I think I like the creative opportunity in change, um, I didn't appreciate how much change threatens so many people. Um, and even and within the my particular NGO, um, there were a lot of people like that. Yeah. And so someone like me, who's always thinking five steps ahead and sort of wondering why we're not there yet. Yeah, I, it's, it becomes, um, well, the imperative is to not, to not end up way ahead of everyone else. So I've really had to learn to keep coming back. So I end up sort of the front runner. I'm way ahead with these ideas and plans and yeah. products. And um, the change, leading change is actually incredibly important and incredibly hard it's one thing to be the change yourself it's quite another to lead it across an organization yeah yeah so that's that's been my learning so that's where i've really focused a lot of time and energy um and and you know it's essentially working so yeah i managed to get the cms solution we'd invested in mothballed and we're on a much simpler track now. And so, you know, change is happening. But, um, and I heard, now hear people in the organization starting to use some of the language that I've been using over a quite, <laughs> quite a long period of time. And that's amazing as well. Yeah. So it's so funny to hear someone now say back to me that they believe that we should develop this in a lean, iterative style. And I'm just like, oh dear, that's good. That's great. You know, good on you. <laughs> It's good. It's good. That's I mean, totally right. Yeah. But um, yeah, and you know, so. But I guess this the pace of change. You know, I just, I, I don't know. I find it. It's pretty slow, and I find some days it's really. It feels a bit like you're walking through. You know, you're moving through mud. It's like everything is twice mm. as hard as it needs to be. So I miss the startup world where you can move quick and fast and. But I, I believe for me and the kind of contribution I can make back to society, I'm actually in a good place. Yeah. And I do watch enviously many um, friends and ex-colleagues who are 
much more sort of outside of the system doing little pockets of awesomeness and I watch them enviously in some respects but I actually also believe we need um, we need social change leaders who are willing to get inside these organizations to try and lead change from within I um I don't I think we need those sort of isolated operators outside who can show us other ways of operating but we also need people who are prepared to be resilient and determined enough and work within the structures to actually move stuff forward is it well why do you think that is it well maybe i can leave it open like that why do you think that is important um yeah that's a good question so for me there's this it's a level of social responsibility um an ngo like the alcohol and drug foundation receives predominantly government funding even even now so nearly 90 95 percent of its funds come through government so these are public dollars um and we have a purpose or a mission to prevent harm in australia so there is a really compelling need really compelling purpose we've got public dollars i think there's there's a a responsibility to the people of australia the people our communities to actually do this as best we can and yeah. to um, make the money go as far as it can, really, because there's not enough of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, in Melbourne these days, you see the need really going up all the time. We get a questions wherever we go around um, the homelessness issue in Melbourne. It's so visible. It is. There's yeah. a lot of intersection, obviously, not maybe not obviously, but with... Um, drug dependency and other things not all homeless people are dependent on drugs but often there is an overlap um yes i think there's a great need yeah Mm. and do you i guess the question that was uh, yeah do you think that could this be done well if you were gonna could you do this what you're doing at adf if you're going to start an organisation again, could you build it in a lean way from yeah. the ground up? Can you know, do you ever do you ever think about that kind of I, stuff? I think about it non-stop, and um, yeah, definitely a couple of friends and I we are often muse about what that might look like <laughs> yeah. because yeah, that's extremely compelling, particularly um, yeah, particularly for someone like me that just really does. I I like to carry a quite a heavy volume or like a heavy load I suppose and I like to move fast and I jump from ideas to ideas really quickly which can be problematic but mostly I make it work (laughs) so yeah to to start a new organization and we're actually already seeing it in some respects these really small sort of social enterprises that are doing awesome things um, often because of their constraints yeah so yes I think you could you could absolutely build an organization in a really lean way, the challenge would be funding. But you know, um, Hello Sunday Morning. Do you know those guys? I've yeah. heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they are obviously they're in the alcohol harm prevention space. Um, they just won a Google Impact grant. Did they? Yep. Yeah. I think six fifty k. They've got a number of other significant um, partners that are helping them buy. So there, there are other ways, and I think those alternative models. Um, are going to gain more and more traction. Yeah. It's not it's not easy work, but I think just as um, I think I think that startup space will see an ever increasing number of people that have a social mission as well as a success mission, and and that's good for everyone ultimately. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a space. It's Chris Rain, I think, isn't it? Yeah, the Chris Rain. Yeah. 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 I really like what he's doing. I was in your, went to your bathroom before, so you got who goes, who gives a crap toilet paper in there and the thank you stuff. Yeah, thank you stuff. Yeah, there is. I think it seems like we're just starting in I, this I area. Think so as well. Yeah. Um, and I think the corporate space are also like the corporates are also eyeing this area with interest because of the great PR value. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Which is a little terrifying in many respects because you don't want it to become dystokinistic. But, mm. um, you know, I think the B Corp movement, for instance, is a growing 
is and will be just a bigger and bigger thing all, all the time, yeah. and it and it should be. Yeah. Mm. I've got a couple of questions as we start to wrap up. Cool. Um, which and the first one's about, which we're probably leading into quite nicely, but just what you what you speculate or what you daydream about disrupting one day in the future. Like, is there something that's you know, in the idea garden in the back of your mind about, yeah, you know, maybe when I'm finished here at the ADF, I'd like to be part of that one day or wouldn't it just be great one at one point in my life to be part of making that uh, a little bit different? Is there something that comes to mind when I say that? I, I definitely have thought quite a bit about um, some type of organisation in the sort of data connecting NGO space. I think that there is huge um, demand out there for um, appropriate data sources for decision making, particularly around awareness campaigns and behavior campaign, behavior change campaigns and things like that yeah. for the common good. And no one knows how to go about it. So I definitely think about that. It's sort of similar, in a way it's similar to some of the work you guys are doing, but different as well. I think, um, so I, I don't know what my next move or what I'd kind of, where I'd take this to, but sure. there's definitely a lot of ideas around, around that. I guess the agency model as well really interests me. And so we work with a number of interesting tech and creative agencies right now. Um, from a service design perspective, from a product development perspective, I think there is some awesome awesome opportunities um right now i do there is it feels like there's a plethora of agencies working in this space so i'm kind of i'd have to work out what the point of difference will be what for what i would want to do and that's probably an evolving piece as the sector sort of emerges and evolves as well yeah 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 mm. <laughs> that's cool when i think about just our conversation and the um the experience that you've got I get a bit excited about what you might be working on next and what you might um, imagine. Yeah, I think it Definitely, be... the in, bringing the arts into um, corporates and into the NGO space in a meaningful way, like not just art, not, not there's anything wrong with art for art's sake, but that whole creative process is a way for critiquing and evolving product and business thinking, I think is really exciting. Yeah, and bringing meaning to people's yeah, work meaning, as well. Meaning yeah, good. Yeah. meaning's good, meaning work's good. Yeah, so, um, yeah, meaning, uh, it's funny though, um, even my, um, the, the NGO I work for, although we work in the community space, we often don't work with the arts, it's like they've always imagined that the arts sits outside of the drug and alcohol space, but of course it doesn't, um, in fact, probably arts practitioners... <laughs> consume quite a lot of substances but anyway that's yeah. another story altogether but we we work a lot with sport so to me though if you mm. actually want to see change in community working across both the arts and sports streams because they tend to gather up really different individuals um is a really compelling future yeah yeah so it's you think you know for especially for young kids teenagers to find arts practice that they connect to whether it's you know drama form or dance or you know hip-hop whatever it is um spoken word like anything like that is just another avenue so and it's an avenue that you know sports loving kids are off on their own doing sport they're fine and sport is a real protective factor in terms of preventing harm but what about what about all the other kids and even adults you know, through the arts, you can actually find great ways to connect. Yeah. And strengthen community. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I was definitely down the sports path as a kid, and the arts were kind of quite foreign to me. Yeah. Uh, but I, and I never found my way of connecting. Mm. Um, I just felt like I was almost like I believed I wasn't a creative kid or an art an art kid. Yeah. But it's only in the past couple of years I think that I've I've re I've awakened to that, and it's just enriched my life. Amazingly, yeah. Yeah, because you actually must be quite creative to do the work you do. Yeah, I've, that's that's a, that's a tag that I've <laughs> only recently become comfortable with or accepted for yeah. myself. Like yeah. I do feel like I was in a. I don't know if you know Michael Dixon. Do you know Michael Dixon? He's um, 
Anyway, he's, he's doing some work around corporates and arts, kind of like what you were talking oh, about, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. I look him up. But he was, um, I was at one of his gatherings and he was just saying, you know, it's great to be in a room full of creative people. And I was just like, I felt, I didn't feel like an outsider when he said that. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's a big change. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, yeah, then the last question is about yourself and about um, a small change or a subtle disruption that you've made in your own life that's had um, an important impact or a, a large impact or some sort of significant change that would be also interesting for other people to hear about as well. Yeah, I probably should have thought about this some more. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I think... I, I th- When I talk to other people about how I live and where we live and what what it's like and going without a car people are truly shocked people are shocked um that you know that I live with a communal laundry and they're actually intrigued um and so I think you know although I'm clearly not unique and there's certainly a whole apartment building of us here who live like that and there's probably many other communities emerging like this around Australia and the world it's still a novel thing and it's still so it is important to kind of talk about how well you can live without the normal um the normal trappings of comfort and to great benefit yeah and i you know the no car factor connects you to your neighbors it connects you to your street um, it it changes everything. So I don't know. Even using public transport regularly connects you to the your, your the rest of your community. You might not talk to them all, but you know you really do have that sense that everyone is there with you, striving for a better, happier life. Everyone, no one wants to feel pain. No one wants to suffer. Everyone wants to be okay, and. And I guess that kind of empathy for for my people, for all our people, for the community is something that I work at cultivating and something that I think is endlessly giving as well. Like it just, yeah, just doesn't stop when once you start that kind of empathetic practice in your day to day. Yeah. It just evolves and it's really cool. And, and I don't know why I connect that to not driving a car but for me it really does it removes barriers yeah. you see i'm often waiting at the tram stop if i'm catching the tram in you know you watch all the commuters and they're in their own little bubbles and i get it it's awesome to sit in your own little car bubble and <laughs> listen to your favorite radio or whatever but there is something we are building walls around ourselves all the time walls that separate us from connecting in a meaningful way with other people and it doesn't need to be like that it's actually okay to be able to talk to your neighbor over the fence you know um you don't i don't i don't actually know what we're all so afraid of (laughs) why are we so afraid of connecting to others what's there to fear um yeah i think that's a great question to leave our conversation on actually thank you so much for inviting me into your house, into the commons and sharing about what you're up to. It's been great, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, It's great to chat. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, A great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.